This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Uh, open your Bible in the middle, probably it will be Psalms. Turn right, go straight through Proverbs, and you will find Ecclesiastes. While you're turning there, I want to encourage you to return this evening uh, to our service, uh, a large part of which is prayer. As a church, we do not rely on human programs or efforts. We rely on the means of grace that God has given us, uh, such as preaching of the Word, teaching of the Word, uh, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, and and prayer. Those things require the power of God. Without the power of God, this church will fail. Uh, When we meet together, we pray for one another, and we pray for the children of our church, the ministries of our church, and for God's power in our church. And so I would encourage you to come tonight to pray uh, for our Bible study. We're going to, in the next few weeks, Lord willing, finish up our study uh, on the life of Joseph from Genesis. So I encourage you to return this evening to worship and pray with us. This morning we are beginning a series of studies in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, this morning we are looking at verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weird. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace and your help and your light as we begin our study of this book, as we look at this passage today. Father, we pray that your Spirit who inspired these words and who has preserved them for us to the present day would open them up and apply them to our minds and to our hearts and to our lives that we would grow in grace by your word, that we would benefit in following Jesus from our study of this text. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
A recent media sensation was the end of the TV series, The Sopranos. The effectiveness of its ending was debatable, as many people simply thought their cable had gone out. But long before The Sopranos faded to black, uh, another popular television show ended. Uh, St. Elsewhere was a medical drama that ran from 1982 till 1988. Some of you may remember the show, may remember its ending. Uh, Some of you may remember the 80s, or maybe not. Well, in the final episode of St. Elsewhere, the the camera zooms out from the hospital, uh, which was sort of a run-down place in urban Boston. The camera zooms out from the hospital as snow begins to fall. And the scene changes to a room where Dr. Westfall, one of the leading doctors, on the show uh, where he walks into a room and by his dress and by a conversation with one of the other doctors who in this scene is his father, it's clear that he's not a doctor, he's a construction worker. And his autistic son Tommy is sitting there and as Dr. Westfall, or now as Westfall, the construction worker, walks in, he says to his father, I don't understand this autism thing, Pop. Here's my son. I talk to him. I don't even know if he can hear me because he sits there all day long in his own world staring at that toy. What's he thinking about? Well, the toy, as it turns out, was one of those little snow globes, you know, where you shake it and it snows. And inside the snow globe was a replica of the hospital. Tommy shakes the snow globe and the snow swirls around. His father tells him, come wash his hands, get ready to eat. And Westfall, the father, takes the snow globe and places it on the television set and walks out of the room and the camera just zooms in on the snow globe with the little hospital and the snow swirling around it. The implication, of course, is that the entire series was merely the imagination of an autistic child. What is the meaning of life? Does life have meaning? Or is it, according to Macbeth, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing? Or or to put it another way, are our lives merely the imaginations of an autistic child? You see, these are the kind of questions with which the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles. It's a rather remarkable book, and in fact, I would give you the assignment of reading through this book in the coming days. It's just 12 chapters, maybe a chapter a day to read through Ecclesiastes. It's remarkable because to be as old as it is, it has a strikingly contemporary tone. It asks questions that people ask today. It feels the same angst about life that people feel today. Now, as we look at it, verse 1 declares these to be the words of the preacher. Literally, uh, the word is Kohelet or Koheleth. Uh, the, the name Kohelet, it means something of the assemblies, referring to the master or the speaker to an assembly of people. And so 
translated here, the preacher, the one speaking to the assembly, the one speaking to a congregation gathered. He describes himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, traditionally, and for a long time, uh, Kohelet has been thought to be uh, King Solomon. And traditionally, the book has been ascribed to Solomon. And there is much here that would fit with Solomon in terms of the, the scope of the things that he tries to accomplish uh, and in terms of what he says about himself in verse 1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. However, others who study the book, including very conservative uh, biblical scholars, conclude that the writer is not Solomon. Now, you need to know the book never claims to have been written by Solomon. That's an assumption that Kohelet is Solomon, but it never says that. And in fact, there are other reasons, including the over, t- overall tone of the background. It seems different from Solomon's day, which was a day of splendor and grandeur in the kingdom. This seems much darker, more difficult, bleak. Uh, statements, for example, such as um, verse 16, where he says, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. All? Well, that would have been his father David, if it's Solomon. Hardly seems like worthy of referring to as all who were over Jerusalem. He said, well, King Saul, but Saul was not in Jerusalem uh, at that time when he was king. So, it could be Solomon. It could be written to represent it from Solomon's point of view. However, we will refer to the author as he refers to himself, as Kohelet, the preacher, the teacher of the congregation, of those gathered to listen to what he has to say, although uh, certainly... uh, could be written from Solomon's point of view as well. We'll refer to him as the preacher or to Kohelet. Now, another thing you need to know as we begin this study is that the key phrase in Ecclesiastes is the phrase, under the sun. It occurs twice in this opening passage. It actually occurs 28 times in the entire book occurring in every chapter except chapter 7 and chapters 11 and 12. So the theme under the sun is prominent and it's key to understanding the book because it's the perspective with which the preacher looks at life merely on the horizontal without regard to God. Life under the sun, life under heaven, life from the merely merely human viewpoint. We might say he adopts a secular point of view, removing God from the picture. And if you take God out of the equation, this is what you are left with. And so that's the viewpoint. That's what he has to say. Life under the sun. Another thing, the book begins and ends with what may be to you a familiar and certainly a haunting refrain. In chapter 1, verse 2, It begins in chapter 12, verse 8. It ends near the end of the book with this refrain. Habel Habalim, Amar Kohelet. Habel Habalim. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word translated vanity refers to a breath, a mist. It has the idea of something empty, something ephemeral, fleeting, passing. Nothing, basically, is is the idea. And the repetition emphasizes nothing, nothing, nothing. All is nothing. And it sets the tone for the book. 
and it gives us the message for the book and for our passage this morning, which serves as something of an introduction to the book. That message is this. Apart from God, life is empty. Apart from God, life is empty. Now, in the verses that follow, he goes on to give some examples of why he thinks so, why he says that. Uh, examples that will be elaborated on and expanded uh, in following chapters. He also describes some of the effects that this point of view has on us, has on people. So we want to look at these examples he lists, and we also want to look at the effects of this point of view. First of all, some examples of the emptiness of life apart from God. Let's see this in verses 3 through 7. Look at verse uh, 3. What does man gain? by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. One example he gives is just the futility of life apart from God. What does a man gain from all the toil, all the work, all the efforts uh, at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what he's saying basically is for all that you do in life, all that happens, all its ups and downs, when all is said and done, when you turn the light out on the end of your life, when you finally close the door to your business and retire, when you walk away from the fresh grave of someone you loved, as curtains, any final advantage is reduced to zero satisfaction. Futility of life. David Hubbard, now deceased, former president for many years of Fuller Theological Seminary, describes it this way. He says, futile days we can expect from time to time. And he's describing, even, even, as, even as Christians, living in a fallen, broken world, some of what we plan will miscarry. Paths that look promising will peter out and force us to backtrack. Pillars that we lean on will collapse and send our hopes tumbling down on us. When sickness strikes or financial reverses hit, futile days stretch into empty weeks or months. There have been times when we've huge heaved huge sighs as we ripped December's page from the calendar and welcomed a new year that offered better days than the old. This futility is akin to irony because it's full of surprises. We find it where we least expect it. Values that we treasure prove false. Efforts that should succeed come to failure. Pleasures that should satisfy increase our thirst. Ironic futility, futile irony, that is the color of life. You've experienced that, and so have I. We know what this is. Maybe before you became a Christian, maybe even as a Christian, sometimes when the difficulties of life force you into thinking, is it all in vain? Is this all for nothing? So the futility of life is one example that he gives. But there's another example, and that has to do with the transience of people. Look at verse 4. A generation goes. Generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's another way of saying people come, people go, but the earth, this land, these trees, this mountain, it's all still here. It's these people come and people go. You know, when I was born, there were three generations ahead of me in my family that I knew. My parents, of course, my grandparents, and my great-grandmother. I have one generation ahead of me now, my parents, and one day I'll be at the top of that list, and I trust my children following and their children, generations following, but I will be the next generation preparing to bow out, to leave the stage, to depart from 
the scene. Generations come, generations go. Now, this is true chronologically. It's also true geographically, especially in our day, a day of mobility like no other day, and especially in an area like ours. People come, people move here, people live and work here for a while, and people move somewhere else. There is something of a depersonalizing effect, a reluctance to build relationships, to make ties, to grow connections, isn't there? Because of the transience of people through time, through space. He also mentions another example, and that is the repetition of nature. Verses 5 through 75, he mentions the sun. Sun rises, sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. Now, you know, from a godly point of view, for example, Jeremiah's point of view, he could say, your mercies never end. They are new every morning. Your mercies are new every time the sun comes up. Great is your faithfulness. But we're not studying Jeremiah, are we? We're studying Ecclesiastes. And the sun comes up, and it's just another day Grinding along, making our way, looking forward to going to bed that night to rest our weary bones so we can get up in the morning and do it again. The repetition, day after day, day just seems to follow day after day. You get a sense of the monotony he's describing here. Uh, The wind is something he cites, verse 6. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. It blows one way this day, it blows one way the next day. May not blow it all the next day, but there's nothing new. It's just the wind. The wind blows here and there. He mentions the rivers as an example of this futility. All, verse 7, all streams run to the sea. The sea is not full. You know, when I was little, I think I may have told you about this. One of my favorite activities was to go out in our backyard. We had this old tire in the backyard. And my mother would send us out to paint the tire. And the paint she gave us to use was a cup with some water and some food coloring put into it. And so we would go out with a brush, dip it in the food coloring, and paint that tire. You know, I was convinced that if I just did that enough, color would begin to show on that tire. That was a genius move on her part. Kept me occupied in the backyard for hours. Some of you may want to remember that, you parents of young children. But it's, it was never going to, you know, eventually I caught on. This, this tire is never going to be red. It doesn't matter how much food coloring I put on it. Well, that's what, what the preacher says here. He says, you know, the water runs to the sea, but the sea's never full. It's futile. In fact, the water just evaporates in the clouds and goes back and rains and starts it all over again. Just the monotony, the repetition, day after day, and the wind blowing here and there, and the, the rivers continue to run on and on. Those are just some of the examples he gives, and he'll give more as we go into the book. But this is just an introduction, just to open the door. Now, what is the effect of this kind of point of view? Just life under the sun, again, without reference to God, Just life as it's experienced, existentially, day to day, without any kind of reference to the divine. What is the effect? Well, the effects, he mentions three here. Dissatisfaction. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot 
utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You know, you can almost hear Mick Jagger in the background singing, I can't get no satisfaction. All things ultimately prove just to be full of weariness. You can't even declare it. The eye is never satisfied, not satisfied with seeing. We see things, we like them, we want them, but it's never ending. As soon as we have what we want, we want something else. And the ear, the ear is never satisfied with hearing. It's never filled. It's never content or complete. Chuck Swindoll uh, tells this, this story. He's talking about this, He's, this the whole me- uh, problem of contentment, of being satisfied. He describes an experience he had. He said, I saw a guy in his car last week who had four speakers in his car. They were so big he couldn't see around them in his little Volkswagen. We're talking wall-to-wall speakers. You could just see the windows vibrate. Boom, 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 like a drum. Boom, boom. I got out of his way fast. The guy is a rolling sound system. And I guarantee you one thing. He's not satisfied with it. Why? Because there's always a better sound. It's unbelievable. I can hear some salesperson say, you think this sounds good in a VW Bug? Man, you put this in a Mercedes and double the size of the speakers, it'll blow you away. Of course, you probably can't hear him saying that. He's probably deaf by this point. But The ear is not filled. The eyes are never satisfied with seeing. We want more and we get it, and it proves only a weariness, so we want something else. That's what he's describing here. Dissatisfaction. Uh, the principle of diminishing returns kicks in, where we need more and more and it satisfies less and less. That's one of the results, one of the effects of this under-the-sun point of view. Always needing more and from it deriving less. A second effect is that of boredom. Look at verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, we like to think of our day as somehow being unique. And in some ways it is with the technology that we have, but think about it. Anybody who has ever lived always lived on the edge, the cutting edge of technology. A hundred years from now, people are going to look back at our technology and will not be able to believe that we got by with so little with such primitive, crude technology. And we, we think we're on the edge, and we are. But every generation has been on the edge. A thousand years ago. Five hundred years ago. You know, in the time of the Reformation, the printing press came out. Whoa! Who would have ever thought? You know? And then the days when people had the funny little telephones, you know, you pick it up and talk to it on the wall... What a day we live in, right? We were watching last week, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. And there was a guy carrying a camera around, this big bulky thing on his back. And he said, one of these days, somebody's going to make a camera you can carry in your pocket. Rebecca and I were at my yesterday. We saw a camera. You could put two or three of them in your pocket. Boredom. Rudyard Kipling. The craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. 
There's nothing new. Boredom. It goes back to the first one. Dissatisfaction. Boredom. One day follows another day, follows another day. And last, and perhaps most devastating, insignificance. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. A hundred years from now, will anyone even remember you lived? You'll be a name on a gravestone, maybe a name in a family tree. But you know, our, what, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren a hundred years from now, their great-great-great-grandchildren, Christ tarries, won't know who they are. The generations that follow won't even remember the things that have yet to happen. You see, the problem that he ultimately comes down to is that of insignificance. That when you really think about it from the life under the sun point of view, you and I don't matter any more than the people who lived a thousand years ago, most of whom you have no idea of, mattered. Insignificance. David Wells, writing in his book, Above All Earthly Powers, writes, and he's describing a secular society, not secular through philosophical effort, but secular simply through abundance and material things. He says, God has done a disappearing act, and what are we left with? Only what is shifting and changing, what is superficial and impermanent, only with ourselves and what we can make of ourselves. Depressed yet? Pretty bleak stuff, isn't it? And in Ecclesiastes, it does get better, but not for a while. You see, the book hits us hard with the grim realities of life under the sun, life with God ruled out of the picture before it begins to offer any hope. And it certainly, at any point, does not offer quick and easy answers. As we'll see, the preacher looked for meaning in a lot of places, through a lot of activities and practices, We'll look at those, Lord willing, over the coming weeks. But what he wants us to see is that apart from God, under the sun, life really is empty, meaningless, and it leads to despair. That's where many people are today. Some are there because of philosophical commitments to atheism, that there is no God, and yet they try to make life have meaning, but they know deep down it's all arbitrary. It's curious to see the resurgence of militant atheism. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Sam Harris, Letters to a Christian Nation, and, and others ruling God out. Philosophical atheism, that there is no God in any life we make is exactly what David Wells said, what we make for ourselves. But many others are operating, even professing Christians, in a, in, a, in a practical atheism, as if God did not exist. They would never say he doesn't exist, but they live as though he didn't, both if they're professing Christians in their prayerlessness, in their disobedience, in their materialism, in living for this world, in operating by the rules of this world, in having the priorities of this world, practical atheism. Acknowledging God, but then, in reality, living as though he did not exist. And what is the result of that? 
The result of that is exactly what we read in Ecclesiastes. It will disappoint. You will come up empty every time. The realistic view of the futility of life that Ecclesiastes gives us should lead us. It should uh, drive us to the only source of hope, the only source of ultimate meaning, of transcendent value, and that is God himself. God, our Savior. God, our Creator and Redeemer. Because you see, in contrast to the bleakness of life under the sun, the Christian view of life is realistic, it is practical, and it is full of hope and meaning. God who is there is the God who created us to know Him, created us to live for Him and with Him. He redeemed us in Christ from our sins so we can be reconciled to Him and so we can know Him and be with Him. Because you see, ultimate reality is neither the imagination of an autistic child, and it certainly is not a fade to black. Ultimate reality is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, it really is true, even for those of us who profess faith in Christ, that in our sin... In our foolishness, when we live life, when we adopt, even if only temporarily, a life under the sun perspective, that we come up with these feelings of emptiness, of futility, of monotony, of dissatisfaction and boredom, and even feelings of insignificance. Because, Lord, we were made for bigger things than just the day-to-day grind, eking out a living doing the best we can. Father, we were made to know You. We were made to walk with You. We were made to glorify and to enjoy You and find our meaning and our joy and our contentment and satisfaction and purpose in You. And Lord, nothing is right until we have that. As Ecclesiastes later says, You have put eternity in our hearts and we are not satisfied merely to live for the here and now although that certainly is necessary too, but not by itself. Father, we pray as we study your word that it would convict us of those areas of our lives where we have closed you.